0: And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Virginia Postrel. Virginia Postrel is a columnist for Bloomberg View and has been a regular contributor to The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Forbes. Formerly the editor of Reason Magazine, she is also the author of The Substance of Style and The Future and Its Enemies. She lives in Los Angeles, and it still took her over an hour to get here. Please give a warm welcome to Virginia Postrel. Thank you very much. And not only do I live in Los Angeles and it took me all that time, I live in Westwood and it took me that that long. So, uh, you know, God knows there's going to be, if you came from Silver Lake, you must have started at noon. Uh, but, uh, um, so, yes, that's one of the less glamorous aspects of Los Angeles. So my book is called The Power of Glamour, and... Uh, it attempts to answer a number of questions. Uh, The first of which is, what the heck is glamour? Uh, Glamour is one of these words that gets sprinkled around, particularly on magazine covers, Uh, To mean all kinds of things, it means beauty, luxury, shiny furniture, satin dresses, jewel tones, a lot of things that seem to imply that glamour is a particular style. Uh, But what I argue and what after, you know, came to believe after a lot of thinking about things that are glamorous, and looking at very different sorts of things that are glamorous, uh, is that glamour is a not, in fact, a style. It's not a personal characteristic. Uh, it, you know, cars can be glamorous, cities can be glamorous, ideas can be glamorous, uh, and it changes with the audience. What I came to just, uh, the best way. Uh, to think about glamour is to start by thinking about something else which ends in or or not o or our if you're british which is humor. Glamour is in the same sort of category with humor. That is there is an audience and there is an object and somehow in the interaction of that audience and that glamorous object a specific emotion occurs. So in the case of humor, the emotion is amusement, laughter. Uh, you know, we find it something funny. In the case of uh, glamor, the emotion is a sense of projection and longing. If only, if only I could be like that if only life could be like that, if only I could be with that person or those people, if only I could do that thing, if only I could be on that beach, if only I could relax and have a, a hot stone massage, the currently uh, sort of ubiquitous emblem of feminine uh, feminine indulgence in the same way that something like this would have been in the mid-20th century. So... Glamour is a form of nonverbal persuasion. It is, a, uh, it is sometimes a deliberately constructed form of rhetoric, uh, in the same way that sometimes humor is written by people trying to be funny. And sometimes it's something that just emerges out of interaction, in the same way that somebody just says something funny in a conversation. Uh, glamour can be deliberately crafted, uh, but whether it works or not doesn't depend on your efforts any more than whether a joke is funny or not, it depends on how hard the comedy writer worked. Uh, glamour, whether glamour works, depends on the audience. So what is it that glamour does? That's the second question. You know, what, is, what is the nature of glamour and how does it work? What does it do? What glamour does is it takes our inchoate longings, things we want to be recognized, to be respected, to be loved, to be comfortable, to be wealthy, whatever it might be, and it focuses them on an object. And I have in the book pictures not only Images that are glamorous, but images sort of of glamour at work this Norman Rockwell photo uh, Painting is one another would be this little boy looking at the rocket and there's a lot of billionaires these days who looked like this When they were little kids uh, that looked up into space and that was what was glamorous for them And today they have their own private space programs so glamour can have you know, unexpected consequences, and it can take unexpected forms. But what it always does is it says something about who we are and what we want, and it says we can achieve it. So this is the card, uh, this is, you know, the, the classic glamour of going shopping and seeing something that you like. Buy me, lady, says the dress. I will make you into a beautiful and whole and complete human being, Do not be silly, said the man, for a dress alone cannot do that. True, said the lady, I will have the shoes and the bag as well. And what is funny about this card is the truth that it hits at, which is that there is a psychological process that we see something and we think in some sense something that we know is ridiculous. We feel that some material object or it could be you know, a trip to a special place, uh, it, it, it could be even electing the right president, pursuing the right career, something will make us you know, have the perfect life and it's not just for women. Even with material goods, you know, how many pairs of Air Jordans have been sold with this notion that, you know, these sneakers will make you a whole and complete human being. That, that will make you feel this sense of transcending the things that make you discontent. I think one of the best encapsulations of a very common type of glamour is the title of Megan Dom's book Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House. We live in an era where a lot of movie stars are not particularly glamorous but man oh man do you see the glamour in the interiors magazines. Uh, You know look at that kitchen. If you had that kitchen Think of what sort of person you would be. Think of all the entertaining you would do. Think of what an organized person you would be. Think of how your life would be transformed. You project yourself into those images of the perfect domestic life, and it represents something more than even the ideal kitchen. So the title of the book is The Power of Glamour. And the way that this uh, this talk was described on the Z- by Zocalo in the Getty Institute was, you know, why is glamour important? Why do we need it? And so I want to tar- tell you a story that opens the book. And it's a story about this dancer in the picture, Michaela de Prince. When Michaela de Prince was four years old, she was not this happy ballerina uh, leaping through the air. She was living in really horrible circumstances. She was living in an orphanage in Sierra Leone. Her father had been murdered during the Civil War, and her mother had died of starvation. So, that's bad enough, but it got worse. She was not only one of lots of orphans who had had these kinds of horrible tragedies in their lives. She was an outcast among the orphans, partly because she had a kind of rebellious personality, which those in charge, you know, have all these little kids to manage and they don't really like that. And partly because instead of having, you know, beautiful, childlike, perfectly smooth brown skin like all the other little kids, she had white patches on her skin. And they called her a devil child. And they ranked the children by numbers and they gave her the highest number, which was the worst. Uh, so she got the worst of everything because she was considered unadoptable and you know basically worthless. So she's living in these horrible circumstances. Uh, and one day, against the, the fence surrounding the orphanage, from who knows where, a Western dance magazine. Blows up against the fence. And on the cover of the dance magazine is a beautiful, smiling ballerina and a glittering tutu. And you know, this little girl had never seen anything like that, and it just transported her out of her horrible circumstances. And she wanted to be that person. She tore off the cover. And she didn't have any place to keep it. She didn't have a backpack, much less a chest or drawers or any a trunk or a suitcase or any kind of private space. So she folded it up and kept it in her underwear because that was her only private place. And every night she would open it up and she would lie in her bed and she would look at it and she would imagine herself in this different, better world, being this ballerina. And she says, you know, it saved her because what happened, what gave her this willingness, to, this desire to live another day, to keep on going, uh, and what happened, she got very lucky. I mean, you know, glamour is one thing, uh, the glamour of the ballerina can give you a, a momentary respite. But what happened to her was that she actually was adopted a few, not too long after this happened, by a couple from New Jersey. And she pulled out this tattered picture and she showed her new mother and as soon as she got to New Jersey she started taking ballet lessons because she really wanted to be that person in the picture and that is a you know a really amped up version of the power of glamour that is glamour actually shaping someone's lives where life where she sees the picture she imagines herself she projects herself into it it focuses her longings and she acts upon it. Now, that is somewhat rare. That's an extreme example, but you know, I am of a generation. I know lots of journalists who became journalists because they were inspired by Woodward and Bernstein, and not really the real life Woodward and Bernstein, but the guys in the movie. Um, you know, they wanted to be uh, like Dustin Hoffman and and Robert Redford and bring down a president, and you know, to be have the glamorous life of an investigative journalist. And maybe they ended up, you know, covering commercial real estate or something but that that wasn't that was the spark of the inspi- uh, of the inspiration there's a whole generation of forensic science students people in forensic science programs talk about the CSI effect in the early 90s there was a whole bunch of people who went to law school because they watched LA law Uh, You know, glamorous visions of professions open our imaginations to what we might become. And in some cases, they actually shape our lives. Because what glamour does, and this is why it's important and powerful, is it takes our discontent, it focuses it, it is escapist, but is not escapist in terms of distraction. It's escapist in terms of Amplifying desire, but focusing it on something in particular. I mentioned in passing the idea of voting for people who uh, are are glamorous, or ideas who are glamorous. And in 2008, I used to say, Barack Obama is God's gift to my glamour project. Because there may not be glamorous movie stars, although there are some, but, but this guy is really glamorous and it wasn't just that he was young and good looking and you know sort of graceful in the way he moved and that that sort of thing or eloquent it was that people projected onto him their hopes and dreams and what they imagined what they wanted for the country, what they wanted in a president. The fact that he didn't have a long record in public life, like say his opponent, Hillary Clinton, uh, made him all the more alluring. Uh, The fact that he's a very self-contained individual. Again, he had a kind of mystery about him. One of his friends during the campaign in a famous Rolling Stone article, one of the early articles about him said, Barack is a Rorschach test because people were projecting onto him what they wanted in a president. There was this notion, uh, not so much explicitly thought, but felt that here was somebody who could lift us out of whatever you were dissatisfied with in the country and transport us to a better, you know, a better different life in better different circumstances. And that is glamour at work. What Glamour does is it takes our inchoate longings, it focuses them on an object, and it has three elements that make that work. And the first is it translates those discontents and and whatever it is into a promise of escape and transformation. So this is uh, the, the, the superhero, is the, the most glamorous superhero. I know pe- there are Batman fans, but he's not as glamorous. He has other advantages. Uh, because, and, and one of the reasons that it's hard to write about Superman is that he's better as just an icon as opposed to when you put narrative around him. Tra- dreams of flight and escape and transformation All glamour includes three elements, and the first of those is this promise of escape and transformation. And this is why, if you want the quintessential stereotypical glamorous images, they are either around travel or around fashion or around transportation, something you can inhabit. You may not... You know, we all know it's horrible to fly on a plane, especially a commercial airline like that, but when you see an image like that, you don't imagine yourself, you know, with the guy in front of you like leaning back too much and and the kids screaming and all and the line to the bathroom lining up. You picture yourself as the airplane going off to who knows where some wonderful destination. There's still this feeling of glamor. Similarly, transportation vehicles which like clothing, you know it can be inhabited they also can signify a lifestyle but most of all they have this sense of escape and transformation taking us out of the everyday so gla- there are many things you can do with glamour you can run for president with it you can uh, you know you can shape your career with it but of course one of the common ways of using glamour is in c- commerce and commercial commercial uh, persuasion including advertising so One of the stereotypical touchstone ways of of advertising with glamour is beauty products. So this is a famous... uh, uh campaign called Fire and Ice. Uh, It was first for uh, Revlon in the 50s, and then they recreated it more recently. The idea was, you know, you, the bored and frustrated housewife, sitting there scrubbing your floors and, you know, taking your kids in carpool, you know, if you get this red nail polish, you will, secret, you will unleash the secret siren in yourself. You, know, you will have this moment where you feel yourself to be a different sort of person and it allows you to imagine yourself in this sort of change of pace, a different life, um, not necessarily a life you want to be all the time, but something that is, it speaks to some side of you that's unfulfilled. That's a sort of classic, you know, think of glamour, look, we've got a sparkly dress and some red nail polish. Those are stereotypical glamorous images. But I think this is just as glamorous. This is a photo I took in America's most glamorous store, the container store. The Container Store is the most glamorous store in America, more than Tiffany's, more than Bergdorf Goodman, because what Americans really want is is not so much luxury and, you know, diamonds or something. What Americans really want is a respite from all that stuff (laughs) and some sense of having control over their lives. And you go in the Container Store, and it says... Oh, you just have this you know that these boxes and, and and these shelves and your life will be perfect you know you don't even have to buy one of those houses that Megan Dohm is dreaming of. you can have, have your own house and and just have the right containers and you have that kind of project that same sense of projection and longing with the promise of escape and transformation uh, and and that is glamor. Glamour is not only the things that we think of uh, stereotypically, it's other things that produce the same effect. So the first essential element in anything glamorous is this promise of escape and transformation. The second is grace. Glamour is an illusion. The word originally meant a literal magic spell that made people see things that weren't there. Usually the implication being something that was better than what was actually there and in its non in its metaphorical sense modern metaphorical sense Glamour still has this element of magic and illusion and we often use terms like magic in, in, in The same time as terms like glamour think of the magic of the movies or so And what is the illusion? The illusion is not the promise of escape and transformation. That may not be true, but it may, in other cases, be true. The illusion is that glamour always hides things. It hides the flaws. It hides the distractions. It hides the costs. It hides the disadvantages. It it hides the effort. Effortless glamour is a very common phrase. And because effortlessness and that sense that things just flow along without difficulty is an essential element of glamour. Glamour is a, exemplifies what Balthazar Castiglione talked about, talked about as sprezzatura. You use this term sprezzatura, which is sort of untranslatable, but is, is this kind of nonchalance where you seem to do everything effortlessly, all the, all, the, all the practice, all the exertion that makes whatever your achievement po- is possible is hidden. Everything is made, it's done and said to uh, 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 appear to be without, whatever is done and said appears to be without effort. So in The Power of Glamour, a lot of what I do is I have what I call intellectual infrastructure. There are three elements of glamour. There are two types of this. There are four types of this. There's a lot of that kind of thing. And one of the things I talk about is two different types of grace. One is what I call theatrical grace. This is grace that actually exists in the moment. When Fred and Ginger dance, they actually are graceful. However, unlike their movie characters, they didn't just meet up in some park and start dancing like that. (laughs) You know, all perfectly coordinated. There were hours and hours and days and days of rehearsal. There were bloody shoes. Uh, There there are people between takes fixing up the set. There's a lot behind the scenes to create that true, perfect, graceful moment. And one of the things that is... A wonderful little tidbit that I uncovered is in in the golden age of Hollywood, a lot of the, the clothes, the costumes of the actresses were either too tight, they were sewn into the dresses in order to have that perfect line, or they were too heavy for the actresses to sit down. So Jean Harlow in Dinner at Eight here has to lean on a leaning board in between takes because her dress, which looks so fantastic on screen and truly graceful, has this hidden flaw which is that you can't actually sit down in it or, you know, it will tear. So that's theatrical grace. You hide things behind the scenes. But when we think about glamorizing things, we usually think of something different, which is grace that is never actually there, but where things are being sort of taken out even at the moment. And this is what I call darkroom grace, although it can be done with the traditional way, which is drawing and painting, where everyone is perfect, like the Gibson girl. Uh, People think Barbie is artificial, but like, she was just as disproportionate to a modern person as Barbie. Um, Darkroom Grace is where you hide things on the image. So one thing you may notice is uh, whenever you look through a catalog of interior uh, furnishings, crate and barrel or something like that, somehow all those lamps light up without cords. And they are not run on batteries. <laughs> All of the cords have either been hidden very cleverly by the stylist who you know tapes them under tables or whatever, or they 've just been deleted uh, on and in some cases, they really get carried away and, and they delete not only the cord but you know the supports for the for the tables um, now today 's critics of over photoshopping often think that this sort of retouching started with Photoshop. And not only did it not start even with photography, it was definitely the case on old paintings, but it was a big deal. Uh, retouching was a big deal in the, in the uh, with photographs, and particularly in the golden age of Hollywood. This is a, a before and after George Harrell photo of Joan Crawford. And I don't know how well you can see it, um, but in... The unretouched version, you can, for example, see her little lines on the side of her nose. Uh, she has f- freckles. She actually had freckles all over her body. Uh, she has a few lines on her neck. In the retouched version, all of that is gone. And plus, her eyelashes have gotten really extended, and there are you know dramatic shadows added here and there. But this sort of retouching. This, this darkroom grace can occur even without actually changing the image in the way that we think of with retouching. So this is one of the most famous, possibly the most famous, paparazzi photo ever, which is windblown Jackie. And it is completely candid. She was just walking down the street in New York, and Ron Galella took her picture, as he often did. He was kind of stalk one of the original stalkers. But this, which he calls his Mona Lisa, started out as this. Same picture, not nearly as glamorous. And the difference is not the alteration of the image of Jackie so much as it is changing the context, cropping away All those distractions, anything that detracts from our ability to project ourselves into this sort of ideal world that she represents. You know, that ideal world does not include, you know, telephone poles or sign poles or whatever that is with all that junk. So, glamour requires a promise of escape and transformation, it requires grace, and the third element term, you almost always here associated with glamour, is mystery. Glamour leaves something to the imagination. And mystery has two purposes. One is that it draws us in, and the other is that it hides flaws. So it, it enhances projection, and it also enhances grace. And what I like to say about mystery and glamour is that glamour is neither transparent nor opaque. It's translucent. It allows us to see just enough, a tantalizing amount, an intriguing amount, but not so much that everything is filled in. It lets us fill in the details with our imaginations and our longings. This is a photo from the Getty Collection, one of the great photos of Los Angeles, uh, one of the great photos of uh, modern architecture from Julius Schulman, who appears four times in my book. Uh, his photos appear four times in my book. And what makes this photo so glamorous is the way that it simultaneously draws us in to this sort of idealized idea of the city and of the home and the way it denies our ability to completely enter the picture because the home is behind panes of glass. We can't get any closer to it. The city is out there with all those little windows, those little spots of light. Each one has a possibility, sense of you know the possibilities that any city holds forth as a, as a, a new location for a new life. And yet we can't really know. We can't know what they're talking about. We can't fully enter the picture. We can only enter it an intriguing amount. Often glamour is associated with physical distance. It allows us to see ourselves in an imagined other, which is often literally foreign, literally distant. So this is an ad for Shanghai perfume, mystic ecstasies. Shanghai was very glamorous in the the, uh, early 20th century to the west. Actually, I have a whole discussion of Shanghai in the book. It was glamorous in China for other reasons and it's glamorous now for still other reasons, but there's that sort of sense of distance. Ralph Lauren uh, has said that he never went to Africa, uh, but if he had, he probably wouldn't have designed the clothes he did. He had this imagined sense of the sort of safari and this life that was glamorous to him and it was about a certain way of dressing and desire. It was not about the literal true Africa, it was about this imagined destination that was at a distance. So that's physical distance. Another form of glamour is we often Uh, another way that glamour establishes mystery is often it's something in the past that we imagine as glamorous. And here we have sort of two things going on. One is the silhouette, which is uh, a a glamorous trope, you know, you imagine the man on the other side, you can't see his face, uh, You, he, he's in silhouette. And the other is, of course, Madman is set in sort of an imaginary version of the 1960s where everything is heightened. It's, It's got this sort of very specific, there's this specificity to it, but, you know, everyone is dressed perfectly. Nobody is schlubby. Uh, there's a kind of uh, of, of grace to the setting that is very glamorous even though the actual plots of the shows may not be similarly down abbey another version of the sort of glamorous past the future can also provide a glamorous setting you know the final frontier i did this uh, you know this big survey of star trek fans and i found interesting things i mean One of the interesting things is the experience for fans, this is a very glamorous setting. The setting is glamorous, and one of the things that I found from doing a big survey is that one of the things that it represents is the glamor of an ideal workplace, a place where people can picture themselves as themselves being valued for their contributions in sort of a perfected meritocracy. Glamorous ideas of the future, I discuss in quite a lot of detail, um, were very prevalent in the 20th century up through, I don't know, 1970 or so. Uh, The glamorous ideas around modernity and the future, which were all intertwined with each other. And glamour was, in fact, one way that people... Figured out what this whole modern thing was about. Uh, they got their ideas of modernity, not from manifestos, although there were certainly plenty of those, uh, but from ads and movies and f- images in popular magazines illustrating you know short stories and and, and such. Uh, what is this this glamorous future that we're all headed toward? Uh, And what is the glamorous present, you know, what is glamour in the present that may be removed from me? The glamour of, you know, uh, of, of, of the kinds of conveniences that rich people have that someday will be available to me. And I quote in my book, for example, a British woman who talks about watching American movies and seeing refrigerators. And that was... To her a very glamorous, future, very futuristic idea, but eventually that did sort of trickle down in a way that diamonds and fur coats did not. So one thing I talk about in the, glamour, in the mystery chapter of the book, which people love, and I think it's because there's this chart, is the difference between glamor and charisma, because these are ter- terms that are often conflated. Glamour is, as I've discussed, it's, it's a response to a stimulus. It's there's something glamorous and the audience feels it. The audience feels this sense of projection and longing. And whether something or someone or some place is glamorous depends on the audience. It depends on their longings and it depends on whether they identify, project themselves into whatever it is. And glamour always has this mystery. You don't know. It's not in your face. It's not so present. Whereas charisma is a personal characteristic like intelligence. A human being, or there's this whole argument about where does it draw line. You know, a house cannot be charismatic. Uh, a city is not charismatic. A person is charismatic. It's a characteristic like intelligence. And the person owns that. And it's often much more open. There, It does not require mystery. You can know all kinds of things about Bill Clinton and still find him glam, I would still find him charismatic because it's this force of his personality that draws you in. And I have all these different compare and contrast. But there, there are these different characteristics. Glamour always holds you at a distance whereas charisma is very personal. Glamour inspires admiration and aspiration. Charisma inspires loyalty. You want to be liked by the charismatic person. Charisma is a characteristic of a live performance. If the person is not present, or at least on some type of video, you cannot perceive charisma. It is not something you can see in a still photograph. And one of the results of that is that when somebody dies who's charismatic, their charisma goes with them. The charisma is is not something in the audience, it's something in the person. And so when the person disappears, so does the charisma. Um, and so for example, uh, I use the example in the book of Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, there's a ton, you know, there's big long books of history about the uh, Jacksonian democracy, but we don't really understand why that particular guy was so, was the one who embodied this I, these ideas of, of Jacksonian democracy because it had something to do with the force of his personality, with his charisma. Similarly, Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, there are people in history, I talk about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc in her lifetime was a charismatic general who, brought, who enlisted people to her side. When she died, she became sort of a glamorous icon whose meaning was not necessarily anything about who she really was but was this sort of meaning that the audience projected onto her as she vanished farther and farther into history. So one of the points about glamour versus charisma is that if you're the president of the United States or some other leader, the head of a company, uh, the coach of a team, you're a lot better off having charisma than glamour. Because once you get to know somebody, their glamour disappears. Once somebody has to make decisions that you know, tell these people, oh no, your hopes and dreams, I don't represent them. I represent these other people's hopes and dreams. Then that, all of those kinds of real world considerations puncture the glamour. They, the illusion disappears. And if you don't have charisma, it makes it very hard to lead. Or, now I should say, most politicians and most movie stars have at least some charisma, but not all of them have glamour. So the formula for creating glamour, good luck, depends on the audience, but if you want to try to create it, you have to bring out the best, conceal the worst, and leave something to the imagination. This is what George Harrell, the famous Hollywood Golden Age photographer, said. And it's still, I think, the best formula for trying to manufacture glamour. But again, it doesn't tell you what the audience wants or what they're willing to identify with. Now I want to, because we're at Zocalo, I want to end with a little special thing about California. California is a very glamorous place. And uh, when a lot of people who are not in California think about Californian glamour, they think of something like this, the red carpet, this is, of course, staged because if it was really in California, it would be daytime um, because it would be all done for the East Coast TV audience <laughs> and much less glamorous photograph. But um, they think of people arriving in limousines and having their pictures taken and that sort of glamour of fame and acclaim, celebrity, uh, success, all of those kinds of desires that are represented by that. But California's attraction has always included other forms of glamour as well. There's the glamour of reinventing yourself on the open road. Oh, wait a minute. Grace, you know, uh, this, this picture hides the reality. Um, there has been this sort of glamour around the ocean and youth, and again, California is a place of invention and inventiveness and self reinvention. In the early 20th century, there was a lot of deliberately. Cl- created Booster Glamour. There were all kinds of images of California as a sort of paradise that was safe for women and children. It was, you know, the, the snow and the, the, the missions and the oranges. It had nothing to do with Hollywood. It was all about kind of heaven on earth, come, come to California. And in, this early, in the 20s, in, in the early, in, immediately following World War I, there was a, a very unhappy architect in, he was in Switzerland at the time, but he was from that sort of de- depressed, demoralized, middle European background, and he was dying to get out of Europe. He wanted to get away from the winter, and, away, and he wanted to go to some place, he wrote, where people were more mentally footloose. And he saw this poster in a travel office, California Calls You. And he was totally entranced by this sort of glamorous vision of a new life. And he did, in fact, move to California. And he was Richard Neutra. And he created buildings like this, which, of course, then were made much more glamorous by Julius Schulman's photography. He created these sort of new, glamorous images of the California good life. And he was not disappointed. Uh, Obviously, when he came to California, it wasn't everything, it wasn't perfect. He still had to face all the things that people face, and they're finding clients and dealing with the difficulties of construction and all of those kinds of things, but it did not disappoint him. In fact, the glamour of California attracted him, shaped his life, and in shaping his life, helped shape a new version of California. So that's one example of the power of glamour. And I want to thank you, and I'll take questions. Thank you. I was very inspired by your work, and I want to know a little bit about how you got inspired to do this, and what other kinds of things like this have you done, and are you a photographer? No, I'm not a photographer. I'm a writer. And um, one thing that has happened as a result of doing this book is I've become, my eye has become much more educated. Um, But, now, I actually, I never, I was like the most unlikely person to write a book on glamour. Um, Because, first of all, I am very attracted to the unglamorous side of things. I mean, I am interested in, you know, supply chain management, and, um, you know, I, I, I wrote an article one time for the Boston Globe on operations, uh, operations research, and I, I actually, my previous book was a book called The Substance of Style. Now, that may sound very closely related, but, in fact, The Substance of Style was kind of about the opposite. It was about bringing aesthetics into things that were not traditionally stylish. It came out 10 years ago. And so when I was researching it, things like the idea that a personal computer might be pretty, or a business hotel room might be something that you would be willing to have in your house, that you know, the bed might be something that wasn't hideous. Um, those were new ideas and it was, you know, it was about bringing style into the non-traditionally stylish and why that was happening and what genuine value people get out of the look and feel of things beyond just some kind of notion of manipulation. But as I say, it was not about glamour, it was about toilet brushes. You know, it was, it was about Starbucks. Um, but what happened was that the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in 2004, had an exhibit uh, inspired in, uh, by the curator's interest in glamour and architecture, including he had written a book on Julius Schulman. Uh, and it was called Glamour, Industrial Design, Fashion, and Architecture. And they needed someone to write the lead essay, the overarching essay in their catalog. And he had read my book and he asked me. And the truth was that... I didn't know anything about glamour, but I was in an unusually confident period in my life. And so I said, sure, okay. And drawing on my training largely in literary criticism in college, I sort of used that uh, as a basis for sort of understanding. And some of the elements, Uh, That are in here you are recognizable in that essay they've been refined a lot in in the subsequent years I didn't start writing the book till many years later Um, But that's how I got started in it, and you know, I really became fascinated by how powerful glamour is and how pervasive it is and how it shows up in areas that we don't think about and very interested in it as a form of persuasion and rhetoric. I mean, I think, you know, rhetoric and persuasion get a bad name. We, we use, oh, that's just rhetoric, it's just empty, but they're very important. They're how we communicate with each other uh, without violence uh, and, and uh, uh, with other human beings. And, you know, I say in the book and I say often in speeches glamour is like any other form of rhetoric, it can be used for either good or evil. So, you know, uh, and it can also, um, even if it's used in a good way, it can hide things that you need to think about when you're actually trying to translate it into real life, whether that's, well, those shoes are beautiful, but, you know, where would I wear them? That's sort of impractical. Or, you know, if I, if I, if, if we, you know, build this new high rise and have this beautiful plaza like this picture, the wind is gonna come whooshing like this and, and no one's gonna wanna sit in that plaza because of you know, that sort of thing. So you always have to edit back in the things that are left out. On a continuum, um, as someone who studied this academically, how do you feel about the difference between sex appeal, glamour, and story? Because It feels like there's a similarity in all three of those, but how do you differentiate and why is it glamour that you talk about and how is it different from the the other two? Sex appeal is one thing that people find glamorous. It is not the only thing that people find glamorous. So having sex appeal or, you know, being with someone who has sex appeal is a form of, it can often be a powerful form of glamour. And it is very important to think of it as it's sex appeal. It's not sex. It's not pornography. It's, the, it's sort of this enticement. It's the, it's the till, you know, I used to have in the book, it was like glamour is about foreplay. You know, it's, it's kind of that, there's a form of a kind of desire arousal, not necessarily sexual desire, but uh, in, in glamour. So that's the relation with sex appeal. Story is really a really interesting relationship. Uh, glamour is not story. The, the story version is romance when you put a narrative on sort of glamour or you, you, you glamour is either the scene you know it could be friend ginger dancing the setting the idea of of a, of a place or, or a, a circumstance or it 's the still image it 's not the narrative when you what happens when you make a glamour like narrative is. You put back in the difficulties. You don't put the boring parts in. It doesn't have accounting in it. it. You know, it doesn't have you know cleaning your rifles or your latrines if it's some kind of story about military glory. Um, but it it puts back in the difficulties in order to heighten the glory, and that's romance. You know, think about the Lord of the Rings or um, the you know. Uh, the the moonshot or any there's a whole form of of those kinds of things so that's where story comes in. Glamour is not about story. Uh, Once you start to put the story in it's something else. I was wondering when you were doing your research for the book what sorts of avenues were more useful to your understanding of glamour because it seems like it is such a multifaceted concept. Um, Did you speak with psychologists, architects, photographers? This is my third book. The other two books each took 15 months to write. So I figured this book would take, oh, maybe 18 months to write. It took five years to write. Now, one of those years I had cancer, so that was a doctor's excuse, but I'm fine. But but it took four years to write, okay? It was hard, and it was hard because there's no place in the library where you can go and say, okay, here are the books I need to read about glamour, and here are the experts I need to talk about. So I went, I went down a lot of blind alleys. You know I, I, you know, I did research on nostalgia. I did research on shadow in art. I did you know, research on all kinds of weird things that are not in the book. Um, I found there are a couple there in, in this, so a lot of it is piecing together things from many different fields there are people in media studies there are it depends on what question you're asking so if you want to know something about how do movie audiences relate to movie stars there are some fantastic studies always done in britain never in the united states (laughs) Um, Usually done by feminist scholars of women, although there was a a giant sociological study in 1948 in Britain, Um, and I sort of emulated one of these feminist scholars' survey when I surveyed the Star Trek fans. Um, So you know, you get things like that. Uh, There are obviously you know a certain amount of art history I, I got credentials to go to the Getty Library, to use the Getty Library, and, you know, there's a certain amount of of that sort of reading, photography, I mean, but it really is very wide-ranging, some of it's, you know, popular magazines and newspapers, and a lot of it is just sort of once you get to a point, getting attuned. Now, that said, in the second chapter are a couple of important uh, scholars that are mentioned who were influential on some key concepts. One is a cultural anthropologist named Grant McCracken who had, has a concept called displaced meaning. And the other is a sociologist and historian of religion named Colin Campbell who has an idea of modern self-illusory he, hedonism. And there's actually a Venn diagram of showing how they overlap and how they overlap with glamour. But sort of thinking through these things was was really, I mean, was. Tremendously fun, but it was really tricky and difficult. You, you didn't really talk, uh, except for the photograph of Jackie Kennedy, about President Kennedy. Was he more glamorous and charismatic? Uh, and what would be yes. your thoughts? Well, about let that? me let me just give a little ad here. I have a, a piece up on Bloomberg View, bloomberg.com/view. I think it's still up today. Uh, about it's actually about the glamour of the idea of Camelot. Uh, but yes. He was very glamorous, and he he was also charismatic. And you know, it's but he was unusual in the sense that he was glamorous. It's it's charismatic politicians are much more common than glamorous ones because you know you need a certain level of charisma to get anywhere, much less get elected president. Um, and but you don't necessarily need glamour. Glamour can help you campaign, and I have in in my book I have. Um, a discussion of sort of that that Kennedy moment. It's interestingly, it's less about him and more about her. But it, it and, and like why it was that people liked her, even though she wasn't the classic populist sort of lady. I mean, she's what American voters they may vote for, but they don't generally like it because American voters are sort of populist. But I think a, he, he was glamorous. He had a lot of. He had certain similar characteristics to Barack Obama in 2008. He was young. He was handsome. He was slightly different from the American norm, but not too different. I mean, there's this, you know, if you get too exotic, then it doesn't work. But he was, you know, he was Catholic. Most people weren't Catholic. He was rich. Most people weren't rich. He was from this big family that had this interesting story. So he was. He had an interesting story, but it wasn't so different that people couldn't project themselves into it. Um, but a lot of the reason that he stayed glamorous and President Obama hasn't is that he got shot. And I mean it's you know it's because he didn't have that second term, you know, rubber hits the road, scandals happen, you know, and there was a lot, a lot being hidden in the Kennedy administration. Um, and and so he had a glamour in the 1960 campaign, and there was a lot of glamour around his family and his wife, um, but then the glamour was intensified by his death, and you know, many, many uh, gl- of the most glamorous figures in history, going all the way back to Achilles and Alexander the Great, are people who died young, because they always have that possibility of what they might have become, and, you know, you can imagine, you can project onto them whatever you, you know, the most hopeful scenario. I'm a really big Batman fan. Every All fans are Batman fans. <laughs> Superman has no fans over the age of four. Okay, fair enough. Can you go into a bit more about why you consider Superman being glamorous and Batman not? Because okay. I thought yeah, yeah. the opposite. It goes back to this, the first question about, or maybe it was the second, but the question about story. So uh, Superman is a very glamorous idea and image. He can fly, he has the cape, he, he is, he doesn't have to work hard, he just has those powers. And I think that that is, in fact, why Superman is a really good icon to put on things, but much harder to write comic books or movies about. I mean, this is not original to me. It's been off remark. Whereas Batman has to work really hard, and we see that exertion. And so with Batman, it's more of a romance. It's it, it and, and that works better if you're actually trying to tell stories, because you can, you know, you can show the struggle in in various ways. Now that said, there's some very glamorous images of Batman, <laughs> um, and 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 he, you know, and the creature of the night, and he has all that sort of mystery around him. Uh, that and and you know, the much more interesting uh, secret identity and 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 that sort of thing that work very well for glamour. So it's kind of you know, it's kind of like a cheap thing saying that. In 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 the book, I have pictures of, and this was partly constrained by what it's easy to get pictures of from stock houses as opposed to the comic book co- companies, which are impossible. And it, but I have pictures of the Justice League, and I have picture of Spider Man, and I have Andy Warhol's Superman, uh, and Andy, um, because I think that there is something, I, my, Well, this, uh, my interpretation of Warhol is that he's much more serious about this stuff than people think, and that he really did love the comics, and he wasn't kidding, and he really did love Marilyn Monroe, and he even really did love Campbell's Soup, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's for another day, but thank you. <clears throat>